Hi, I'm Audrey Bellis, and you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon Español. We tell stories about fierce, femme, leaders, and activists of color bettering our worlds. Let's get started. We are here today with Renata Simrel from LA84, and this is a special treat for us because Renata was one of our keynote speakers at our very first Worthy Women Conference back in November. Renata, welcome. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to be here with you today. One of the things that really stands out to me from that conference is one of your many quotables, but this one in particular has really stuck with me, and it was, service is the price you pay for the space you occupy. Did I get that right? You got that perfect. Oh, my great grandmother used to tell me that. Oh, I love that. I'm going to repeat it again. And we'll go ahead and put this in the summary for all you guys listening. Service is the price you pay for the space you occupy. And Renata, you occupy a lot of space. (laughs) And I mean some cool spaces. I have been blessed with opportunities. Tell us. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what you do at LA84. And then I want to hear more about what you did with the Dodgers and LA Times because you have quite the pedigree here. Yeah, I'm uh, call me Renata Angelino in the context of embracing my civic responsibility. So I'm president and CEO of the LA84 Foundation. And it's the legacy of the 84 Olympic Games. And we help youth become their best selves through sport. We provide opportunities for underserved, unserved communities throughout greater Southern California uh, for kids to engage in sport activity with positive coach mentors to help them you know, become re- life ready, whether or not that's on or off the court. Now, were you at LA Times right before or you were at the Dodgers? Oh, my running joke is I can't keep a job. Um, <laughs> and I've, I've fallen up. Um, but again, I've been giving just some tremendous opportunities. One of my other, other famous famous sayings or quips is, education is universal, opportunity is not, particularly for black and brown kids. I had to go to the military to find my way to college because both my parents were working class. Well, they were working parents in the grocery industry. My dad was a butcher. My mom was a grocery clerk. And neither one of them graduated from college. And so I knew that was you know, sort of my path out of my circumstances to a better world, to a better life. But I had to go to Uncle Sam. Uh, to borrow the money. So three years in the military. And since that time, just opportunities have opened up for me. And I've taken those opportunities and sometimes I've meant leaving some pretty amazing places. I started my career helping to rebuild South Atlanta after the riots and we just celebrated the 20th anniversary. So I've had time to really reflect on that service is the price you pay for the space you occupy mantra that I live by and went to real estate development, worked for some amazing uh, firms, was traveling an awful lot, uh, married with two kids. And my husband's like, he's got a busy career. Something's got to give. And I said, it'd be great. I love sport. I love giving back to the community. And, you know, this opportunity with the new ownership with the Dodgers came up and I found my way through networks and, you know, people that I've done well by that, you know, opened some doors for me. And I had a great three seasons with the Dodgers. A friend of mine, uh, Austin Butner, who became publisher and CEO of the LA Times, said, hey, we're trying to save our publishing industry. And would you come and help me out? People thought I was crazy, but, you know, we... Had a nine-month run of it. Um, I mean, I bleed blue. I met the CFO of the Dodgers through a friend, and we were at a meeting that he happened to be at, and I fangirled over him so hard. I literally went like this, oh my gosh, hi, I'm Audrey Fellas. Let me tell you all about my favorite Dodger stories from when I was little, and I used to go with my uncle, and 
My uncle, he worked nights and during the day, he would take me to day games in the summer and he brought me along for the carpool lane and he used to buy me a bag of peanuts and we'd listen to Jaime Harin in Spanish at the Dodgers with Jaime a like, my heart. Like, I love Jaime. And I fangirled so hard over this guy and I was like holding onto his hand, but I wouldn't let go and I was doing the awkward excessive shaking and he just looked at me like, What? Tucker Kane? Tucker Kane? Yes. Uh That is literally only the second time I've ever like, you know, I hate when people do that to me and I just totally did it to him. I was so awkward and embarrassed. I was like, sorry. Sorry, bro. Sorry. Tucker Tucker is a sweetheart. He is salt of the earth sweetheart. But yes, um, I I, I, I had to keep my fangirl down a little bit, but uh, working three seasons with just an incredible new ownership group and the team and being able to, you know, become not just colleagues, but friends with Jaime. He is, he and his family just absolutely dears. Absolutely dears. I feel like every Latino in Southern California can relate to this. I mean, who didn't grow up listening to him? Randy, did you listen to him? No, actually, I uh, I was on KPLA. I was more about Vince Scully. I mean, we're all about Vince Scully. Vince Scully, I mean, but Jaime is... He's, uh, he's pretty special. He's a Latino institution. He is. Oh, he is. but the LA Times is also an institution. And um, I mean, it's iconic even just working downtown and walking by the building. You think of things that come out of there. Just recently, LA Times did that miniseries piece on the woman who, what did they try to frame her for? Drug possession? Did you read that? I didn't. Oh my gosh, LA Times is genius. So they did this. We're getting off topic, but I promise we'll get back there. And this leads back into how we engage with people, right? And storytelling in general. This woman in Orange County, one of the fellow PTA moms didn't like her. Oh, yes, I did. That was a great story. And they trickled out. Framed her with some drug possession. That's what it was called. It was called Framed. Yes. And every day I tuned in for my next piece. I have not followed something so hard since 40 days of dating. I mean, it was the best installment. And I looked at LA Times and I was like, man, nobody's doing genius things like this. And I will say when they revamped their website a couple years ago, that new comment section, the way that they were engaging and letting their readers be a part of the story. That was Austin Butner. That was Austin Butner. Verticals to engage the community. It's a simple, just engaging and meeting our readers where they are. Mm. So it was great work. It was great work. It didn't last as long as I would like it to last, but... You know, as uh, fortune would have my way, um, the day I resigned, the next day I got a recruiter for my interest, to solicit my interest for uh, becoming president and CEO of the LA84 Foundation. So life happens for a reason. It absolutely does. Before we talk more about LA84, I want to go backwards just a little bit and talk about your time in the service. My time in the service. Your time in the service. When I think of the military, and you know, quite frankly, I actually almost considered a military career. My parents did not have a ton of money either. You would have been a badass in the military. I'm very good with structure. I do obsessively well with creating structure and bossing people around. Like I'm, I was that little kid on the playground that was smaller than everybody, but I had a very big personality and people don't say no to me. Five star Argy Bellis. I could see it. I could see it. That's what I said. And I told my parents that and they were like, oh, please no, not never. Like, Please no. And September 11th happened when I was in high school. So it was very, it was very different times, but my dad's a defense contractor. So we very much grew up in a family of, of service, yeah. right? And I fortunately was able to get an academic scholarship, which helped pave my way through school and help me transition. But when I think of military, this is going to sound horrible, but I think of white men with a buzz cut, right? That's I think right. men, I think in particular white men and a little bit of America. Yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. So uh, tell us about your experience in that because when I look at you, I think 
I can see military service because I, I you don't see think, military police officer service. Yes, I do. Yes, people. I don't picture people saying no to you. In fact, I find you with big, beautiful smile, yet very intimidating sometimes. I am a sweetheart. I, I believe am, this. I'm so easygoing. But I still, I go. It's so easygoing. When your assistant booked an appointment with us, I turned to my assistant and I said, oh my gosh, Renata wants to talk to me. It was a very grown-up moment. so sweet. I had the same reaction when you took the uh, when you took me up on the offer. <laughs> there you go. Like minds. Yeah. You know, the military was it was interesting from a variety of perspectives. One, I grew up in Carson, so about twenty minutes okay. south of downtown, um, the South Bay, and you know, I really grew up in a bubble for the most part. I had uh, Asian friends, Samoan friends, Mexican friends, black friends, white friends. My grandfather's Irish. My aunt dated the United Nations. Um, you know, we didn't know who was going to show up for dinner or on the holidays. Like that. It's just so we, yeah. we I literally grew up in this United Nations. And so I really didn't, I wasn't aware of my African-Americanness, my, you know, black heritage. Um, I had two aunts, you know, I probably thought I was more Latino than I was anything else because my mother's two play sisters were from El Paso. And, you know, that sort of, that was a tight knit group for us. And we hung out together. And so you know, going in the military was an experience for me, not just the physical transformation and hanging out with middle America, America, yeah. but it was really one that challenged me to look at my identity, uh, who I was, um, both as an American, because I happened to be stationed in Europe after my basic training, um, but also as a woman uh, and then as an African-American woman. And it was a phenomenal two years living in Europe, really getting to know who I was, what I was made of. You know, I don't know, most people don't know this, but I seem, you know, strong and tough and persevere. Uh, about a weekend of basic training, just the middle America buzz cut white boy, you know, the, just the hard nature of um, African-American drill sergeant being tough on me because she wanted to get the best out of me. I, I didn't know how to deal with it. It was such a different experience. I called my dad in the middle of the night and I said, I want to come home in tears. And my mom's on the phone and, you know, she's okay, come home. And I could see them struggling for my, for the phone. And my dad simply said to me, you can come home, but you can't come here. So you made a decision to do something, stick it out, figure it out and make it happen. And, you know, that was really grit, perseverance and, you know, just figuring out how to get along with people. But I think it was first understanding who I was, embracing yeah. my power, uh, embracing my identity and saying, you know, hey, you don't have to like me as a woman, as an African-American woman, but you definitely have to respect me in this context and really use structure and, you know, leadership skills um, to my advantage. And it proved to be a phenomenal experience for me, not just being able to get money to go to college. And I ended up going and graduating from Loyola Marymount University, one of the best institutions yep. uh, in this country. The Jesuit tradition has yes. grounded me as well, but it really um, helped me in a very short period of time, you know, developed a leadership, grit, perseverance that's helped to nurture me through my career since then. To our listeners, if you haven't read the book Grit by Angela Duckworth, you absolutely need to. We'll put in an Amazon link in the follow-up to this for you. Great Phenomenal book. book. Phenomenal book. And I think when it comes to grit, I can certainly relate to that. My parents didn't really coddle us, and coddle's a, a strong word, I guess, but my dad's probably probably very similar to yours. Like, we support your decision, but it's your decision, and we're not here to bail you out. Yep. You chose this. You want this. You're going to stick this through or, you know, experience the consequences on your own terms. We've guided you the best we can, and that's that's it at that point. And I truly do think that that helps us develop thicker skin and the ability to do more, not in a fearless way, but because we've been exposed to other things, right? Yeah, You're exposed sure. to adver adversity and you know, I've overcome things before. 
I can overcome this. It gives you perspective. You also spoke about otherness. When did you first become aware of otherness for you? Was there a particular moment? Well, that's a great question. It has to be my military experience. I dated an Italian. So I, I did my basic training in Anniston, Alabama. Okay. I don't know if you know Anniston, Alabama, but... No, but I know Alabama. And Anniston, I get a sympathetic accent just thinking about it. Yeah, but Anniston, Alabama was at the epicenter of the civil rights movement. Mm. You know, I was in the service in the late 80s. I'm a little bit older than most of your listeners, but I still wear some sneakers, so I'm young at heart. <laughs> um, and I dated uh, in basic training. You're stuck on this base in this, in this uh, sheltered environment. And my boyfriend was Italian, and we were about to go out on the base. And the drill sergeant said, Private... I don't know if you want to uh, go out in town with that Italian. Might not be the best thing. And it just sort of shocked me because, you know, growing up, I could go anywhere with anybody. I mean, you know, heck, my uh, you know, aunt would show up with a Muslim as, you know, her date for Thanksgiving dinner. And it just didn't, yeah. it didn't dawn on me that there was a problem. You know, we're in the you know, late 80s, early 90s that I couldn't go with an Italian boyfriend, you know, out to town. And it just sort of struck me as odd. And you know, I just sort of delved into what does that mean? Why are we still here? And what can I really do to change that? I took his advice and didn't go out. But um, that was probably the moment that I really realized that while we had come a far way in this country, we really still had a long way to go. Yeah. When we think about fitting in, right, to be told experiences like that means you're not going to fit in. And you've spoken in the past about fitting in growing up. At our conference, I think you referred to it as being an awkward girl and how sports helped to transition that for you. Have there been other ways that you felt, I didn't quite fit in, but this helped me transition into finding my way? Or just not caring anymore and being kind of unapologetic about it? You hit it right on the head. And I think it's a combination of both. Sport for me as an awkward, tomboyish teenage girl really helped me to figure out what I was good at. Mm -hmm. Engaging with teammates who didn't care what you look like. They didn't care, um, you know, what you wore. They didn't care how much money your parents had. You know, can you shoot the ball? Can you drive an offense? And, you know, can you win games? That's that's what mattered. And through that process, you know, you develop confidence. You figure out what you're good at. Um, You know, you create that team spirit. Um, When you win, you know, the jubilation of being able to be successful. And then when you lose, trying to figure out, you know, what could I have done better? What could I have done wrong? I mean, what did I do wrong that I could have done better? Uh, And then coming back and then, overcoming those obstacles. So I think that's what sport, I mean, quite frankly, the military, I was a military MP, so I had to become physically fit so that I wasn't a drain on the team. Uh, I didn't want them to look at me and say, oh, you're a woman, you can't pick up that box of ammunition, or you can't carry right. that M60. And so I worked in the gym three hours a day. I ran six miles so that I could be physically able to carry my own weight. And then through experiences of just being good at what I do, Um, You get to a point in life where you say, you know, I'm not trying to be someone else. I'm just trying to be the best Renata I can be. And people are going to like me or not like me. Uh, And that's come with, I think, experience. It comes with age to a certain degree. Oh, yes. And it just comes to a point of settling that I'm not trying to please anybody. I'm just trying to leave this place a little bit better than I found. And in hearkening back to, you know, my guiding principle is that service is the price you pay for the space you occupy. So it's really about the work, the impact. Uh, and everything else is going to be the way it's going to be. I'm just going to be the best Renata I can be. I love that. Speaking of impact and what you're doing now in your career, you really address some societal inequalities for some of our inner city and particularly our youth. 
through the LA 84 Foundation, through opportunities and sports. And I find it interesting that whenever I think of sports and inner cities or children of inner cities, I'm always thinking of, or maybe this is just my limited experience, because when I grew up, all the kids that were struggling at home, it was usually an athlete or a coach who helped them get on the right path. And it was typically typically the young men, because I grew up in Paramount, North Long Beach, so we were all the shades of brown. We were black and brown, and half the time fighting with each other, because it was the gang eras. It was the 90s. Yep. But sports was the place where everybody got along and really was transitional for helping kids get out of gangs, get their path to, you know, get themselves on the right path. The inequalities that our youth is facing, and particularly LA 84, you guys are headquartered in South LA-ish. We're urban adjacent. We're hood adjacent. Hood adjacent. Yes. <laughs> I like that. We are. Hood adjacent. Uber Eats, thank you. We, they actually they actually deliver. <laughs> Most oh, delivery companies don't. Most delivery services don't. They're like, uh, where are you? Uh, I'm at Adams and Western. Well, we don't actually deliver there. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful neighborhood. I'm like, well, we are hood adjacent. Hood adjacent. I actually had an Uber who wouldn't pick me up after I got stranded off the blue line in Watts and I couldn't get an Uber. And I finally got one. And he, you know, he called me and he said, well, where are you exactly? Because the pin is showing me by the green line, blue line station where it intersects. And I said, that's where I am. And he goes, oh no, I'm not going there. <laughs> and I had to wait like 40 minutes for I another know. train in the dark, in the parking lot of a sheriff station where God forbid there's no sheriff. And I go trotting over to the sheriff station. I'm like, can I wait inside? No. You should have called your girl, Mary Brown. She would have <sighs> hooked you up. It was, it was a trip. Back to this question. So how have addressing these inequalities impacted your work? Because you're certainly delivering that in bigger, broader ways, but sometimes it is it must feel impossible to make a difference. I know in my own personal service work, through Catholic charities, through other organizations, it feels great, but sometimes you're like, man, am I making a difference? Am I making a dent in this? Uh, that's a great question, and I've been at this for a long time, and I said earlier that we were celebrating the 20, just recently celebrated the 25th anniversary of the civil unrest. And I spent the first five five plus years of my career after college working with super with now supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas. And you get tired because the problem is so big. The little improvements that you make seem to be a splash for a moment and then sort of disappear. But what I do is I focus on the people because at the end of the day, it's one individual, one family, one community at a time. And with our work, we've served over the last 28, 30 years, 3 million kids. And that's a wow. great number. We've impacted 3 million kids and their family. But what I'm inspired by, what keeps me going, is the story of kids like Kaylin Moore. Kaylin Moore is a young African-American kid that found Falcon Youth Services. Uh, Coach Keith, Keith Johnson is a gift from God without question. Uh, runs a football, youth football program and a social service program. Kaylin's mom found his way to Falcon when he was 11, skinny kid, and he was every negative statistic that you'd expect from an African-American young man. Dad in prison for murder. Mom was sexually, physically abused. Uh, they lived homeless for a while, found their way to Carson, my hometown. And so, you know, when I found his story, I just, you know, got emotionally connected to this young man. Um, so long story short, he finds his way to Bourbon Day, football, children's defense beat the odd scholarship, Mars College, gets injured, uh, recovers, transfers to TCU, and has an aspiration to be an NFL football player. He realized that 
that wasn't, you know, made for him. And so his backup plan, he applied to be a Rhodes Scholar. And the young man is graduating next May and will be going to Europe, going to London to be a Rhodes Scholar over the next two years. That is incredible. And he says, we did an interview um, for our newsletter a couple months ago, and one of his quotes that stays with me, is he said that football isn't my life, but it helped to save my life. Mm. And it was Keith Johnson and the mentorship and you know, be, becoming part of something and that becoming part of a group of people that gave a damn and that really gave him opportunities. And he has seized every opportunity that he's given and he's also remembered to give it back. And he comes back, he'll volunteer. He started a little uh, youth group in Texas. He's at TCU now and just about to graduate. Those are the stories that keep me inspired, that keep me going, because it's one kid at a time, one kid, one family. His brother uh, just recently graduated from Vervman Day, is in college playing football and is following his brother's path. So that's what keeps me energized and going. I love that. I absolutely love that. Three million kids is a huge number. What's our population in L.A.? Do we know? The city of L.A., 4 million, L.A. County, 10. Wow. It's over a 30-year period of time. That is incredible. I'm I'm still in shock by that number. I'm thinking of all those zeros. I know. 2,200 nonprofits, 50 different sports. Uh, We've invested. There's 50 different sports. 50 different sports. Clearly, I have a very limited sport. Handball, badminton, uh, luge. Um, what do they call the little thing for the Winter Olympics where you do the... Uh, oh, curling. Curling? I liked it because they had a broom. And I was like, I could do that. That requires, I don't know how much physical talent, but I could do that. I was pretty surprised when I did the, uh, you know, sort of analysis. I was like, wow, 50 sports. That is a ton of sports. I had no idea. I only follow the bearded ones. So baseball and hockey. That's hilarious. Clearly. Hilarious. And I like hockey because they're aggressive. I'd like to see more men of color at hockey games, but I'm not going to fault all my ginger beards. And baseball because, you know, I can crochet a blanket at, during a game. And finish a blanket during the game is so long. <laughs> Pretty much, yes. And I, well, I'm a numbers person, so I very much love the statistics. Yeah. And I sit there and people go, oh, baseball's so boring. You can watch paint dry. And I go, yeah, but all those beards. I actually love it because it's a moment where you could just stop Mm-hmm. and really engage in conversation. And I have to say, just going back to my time at the Dodgers, one of my favorite things to do is I'd come to the office early in the morning and we're getting ready for a game and the grounds keepers, they keep that grass so pristine. Oh, yeah. You know, the wa- just watching them was just like this rhythm. Nobody else in the stadium. You know, the fog is lifting behind the San Gabriel Mountains and just it, just that peace and that calm. It's just, it, Dodger Stadium is a special place. It truly is. You know, Chavez Ravine is like, I think for me, because we grew up here and we grew up going to games like that, it has such a fond place in my heart. And I think somebody recently made a comment to me about, oh, I hate going there. They haven't had all the renovations that like Anaheim Stadium has had. And I'm like, screw Anaheim Stadium. I could still go get in a fight in left field pavilion. Like, let me tell you about Dodger fans. Dodgers are keeping it real. Yes. Keeping it real. Yes, we do. I mean, growing up, I had two jackets. I had the big Raiders first down jacket. Not that I like the Raiders, but everyone else had it, and I went through a Chola phase. And then I had my Dodgers jacket, jerseys. Those were LA in the house, baby. Yeah, I love it. In fact, I couldn't even date somebody who liked the Angels. That just, the Giants. Oh, even worse. You are a trip. (laughs) I mean, I'm very particular. I'm very particular. Look, I am too. One of my dearest friends who used to be in the governor's office is a San Francisco Giants fan. Oh, and no. we d- didn't find this out until we found that we adored each other and really worked well together. And the relationship, you know, it, it stops 
when yeah. the Dodgers and the Giants play. There's yeah. just no compromise. I, I don't blame you. No compromise. Oh, my goodness. So I want to go back, Renata, to a couple of things. I want to know about your feminism. Do you identify as a feminist? I personally struggle with the word for a long time. You know, I do. And I think, do I consider myself a feminist? You know, it's not the first time somebody's asked me that question. And I think the word has negative connotations Yep. uh, to a certain degree. I'm about women and providing women opportunity to do whatever the hell they want to do, period. Mm -hmm. And it, and life should begin and end with that. But I understand, you know, being a woman and navigating some pretty male dominated careers, industries, that that's not the way the world is. Right. And so again, focusing on the work for me is really, if you want to call it feminism, great. I'm always going to promote and amplify women in my network. Uh, When I was at the Dodgers, we hired a, uh, I was over the selection committee to hire an executive director for the foundation. And I told our search firm, there better be minority women on the list. It's a non-starter if there are not any minority women on the list. Yeah. And again, it's education as universal, opportunity is not, is oftentimes the people making those choices are men yep. and they go to their network. Their network doesn't include, you know, badass, powerful women and mine does. And so I was, we were fortunate to hire an incredibly qualified, out of central casting, dynamic, badass woman, Nicole Whiteman. And she happens to be African-American. When I left um, to join the LA Times, the ownership, you know, asked what what I think, who I would recommend. And, you know, I looked into my network and gave them a few suggestions. Naomi Rodriguez, another badass Latina sister. And so for me, it's just a matter of using my positions of leadership, of influence, and making sure that I'm giving opportunities for, for women. But part of the work that we do at the LA 84 Foundation, uh, we did the survey last year that shows one in four girls don't play sport. And Latina women, Latina young girls are the least likely to play. I raised my hand because that was me. And LA County is 52% Latina. And, yeah. you know, uh, Blanca Gonzalez is a general manager for Nike. The West Coast is a good friend. And she'll tell the story about how sport playing sport as a youngster really helped her navigate, you know, the C-suite and helped her, it helps her navigate, you know, pretty male dominated marketing, you know, position with a global brand. And so really looking at ways in which we can give young girls an opportunity to not necessarily to be an athlete, but just to experience that transformative power. And so, you know, as you look back, my support for women, my speaking up, using my voice for women, using my influence to promote and give opportunities for women. If people want to call that feminism, I'm all for it. I don't know necessarily that I would define what I do. I just think it's the right thing to do to make sure that I'm bringing uh, my sisters along with me uh, and giving them an opportunity to show just how great they can be in the position. Uh, and then hopefully they're leaving the door open for the young women that come behind them. You know, I'm not surprised by that statistic of one in four girls and then Latinas being the least likely. And I think of my own upbringing and it was, you're going to do what's ladylike you're going to do what's proper. And Latino culture is very much a heavy emphasis on the men and prioritizing men. And that's what men do. I think for me in particular- And education. And education. Get right? your education. Yep. So if anything that's takes critical. away from that, I don't want you to do it. Right. We Well, my mom still uses this. I've said this on the podcast before, but her line is forever. We came to this country for you to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. You're going to marry a doctor, lawyer, engineer and have doctor, lawyer, engineer babies. Those are the only options that we condone because for them, that is what, you know, they strived for and what they feel that they've sacrificed to create. Not that they're not proud of me. They just, 
it's not what they know. And therefore, because they don't know it, they don't understand it as their terms of success. Right. And we're trying to, we're trying to help educate the Latino families, both yep. the moms and the dads, because sport, as we start to track data, your numbers mm-hmm. person, as we're starting to track data, uh, we have a program with LUSD in all the middle schools. We fund an after-school sports program. And we study that kids in our sport program do better on eighth grade algebra than kids that aren't playing sport. The transition from Spanish to English language learner is faster for the kids in our sports program than kids who aren't in the sports program. And so sport helps to build grit, self-confidence, and those internal emotionally intelligent skills, but it also helps kids perform better academically. And so it's not a takeaway from being successful in school. It actually helps keep kids engaged in school and to be more successful in the classroom. And so we're going about trying to educate both the moms and the dads, um, not just in the Latino households, but in kids who aren't participating in sport as an option. And look, that funnel to get to college or even the professionals is very narrow. So sport isn't sport for a career sake. But it's really, again, keeping kids engaged and helping them find the leadership and the grit skills to help them persevere through life. Yeah, I remember I was always a very good dancer, but I lacked coordination when it came to things like learning to ride a bicycle. Actually, I just never learned. When my dad said the training wheels are coming off, I was like, then I'm not doing it. Therefore, no, I will not. I still can't ride a bicycle to this day. Really? Oh, yeah. No, I won't do it. I refuse. That's that's interesting, Audrey. I know. And now I just feel too old. It's like getting braces. If you didn't do it when you were younger, at some point I sit there and I look at adults and I'm like, no, I would just get veneers. Might as well go all the way at that point. But for me, and I imagine this happens to a lot of young girls these days due to the hormones in our food and what we're exposed to. I got my period very early. I was nine years old. By the time I was in middle school, I wasn't even five feet with a double D chest. I was overly sexualized. People stared. My friends hadn't gotten their periods yet. And going into the locker room for PE was a hugely shaming thing that I had to avoid or feel like I was being stared at. You run the mile and, and, you know, young boys are also sexualized at that point. They're sitting there, you know, pointing at you going like, you've got huge tits. And they bounce a lot. Something to be said about gender, making boys and girls go to school separately. My son goes to uh, Loyola High School. And I love an all-boys school um, because of those issues. And then you have, in some cases, or most cases, not in some cases, but in most cases, your PE teacher or your coach is a male. Yes. And we've now started to engage, how can we create an opportunity for more female coaches, particularly in middle school? Because how can you go to your male coach? You're embarrassed. You're 13. You're like, how am I going to have this conversation? But if you had a female coach... Yep. And if you had a female Latina coach or a female African-American coach, you're more likely to feel like you got somebody to talk to and then work through those things in a way yeah. that kids aren't dropping out. And so we're trying to, you know, really help from that vantage point because, you know, and it, you mentioned dance, real team. So when you talk about sport, that's one tool of engagement physically, but it could be drill team. And that's a pretty grueling sport. It could be the dance team. And so I think we're starting to look at expanding what we mean by sport and fitness and how to engage Uh, young kids and meeting them where they are in a way that, you know, we can use those uh, incredible transformative examples that we get through sport and some other related type of activities as well. But the coaching is a big issue that we're trying to address as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because once people get shamed, it's harder to overcome getting involved. And certainly body issues start very early with young girls. And I remember for me, that was very 
I became very aware of my appearance roughly in the sixth grade. And the locker room was a big one because we weren't addressing that everybody else, we hadn't really gone through sex ed yet. And, you know, everybody kind of stares and they're, you know, pointing it out. You're doing swim class, you're wearing a bathing suit and you're very self-conscious of it. And you know, Audrey, I think that's when we, we talked about the 50 sports, the fastest growing sport here for the communities in which we serve is rugby. Oh, interesting. Right? And when you think about rugby and the body type you need for rugby, it's not what you would think, you know, basketball, you have a lean, slim, and fast. I mean, you, right. you can be fast in rugby, but you, you know, the, if you're rugged and a little meaty, yep. you can be really successful at rug, rugby. Softball, if you look at girls who play softball, you know, they're not the petite, fragile, lean. Right. And so I think what, what I'm excited about and the number of sports that we engage is, is a variety of sports that we try to identify and then expose young girls to for various body types. We started this program for youth that advise us on our work called Us Ambassadors, Student Athletes in Motion, after Sam the Eagle, right. the 84 mascot. And one young girl, Sarah Joy Saliba, has become a really good friend of the foundation, her and her mom. She started out in ballet, but she's a big girl, busty, and she got teased, mocked, and it was by her coach. Oh, Right? Yeah. And so she switched and found a swimming program and plays water polo and found joy in the water. And I said, Sarah, why, you know, what, what, what was it about the water that you just took to? She says, Renata, they can't see you from your, all they can see is your head up. They can't see mm -hmm. your body. So it doesn't matter how chunky I am or how chubby I am. It only matters that I can do well above the water and playing. And so I think there's a lot of different sports. It's not the, just the mainstream sports that can be appropriate for a variety of body types. And the, the issue for us is in a community, they're taking sport out of yes. the schools. They're taking, you know, it's, it's more- limited exposure what we do have because I didn't have any of those options in PE. You did general PE or you played a sport and well, I'll you tell did you that in a minute. You did PE five days a week. In high school, you only have to get through two years of but PE. But in, in middle school? In middle school, it's one of your periods, whatever period that is. So, so yeah. today, kids maybe once or twice a week to have PE. That's why we're fat. Exactly. Yeah. And they're taking it. But in private schools, they have PE every day. And so, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that PE should not be a social justice issue. There are inequities in communities that we serve in, and sports have become a pay, pay to play. Mm -hmm. So the more affluent communities are able to afford the coach and afford PE, the communities that we serve don't. I mean, we fund all 94 middle schools in LAUSD to provide an after school sports program. And so it is a very much a social justice issue for us so that our kids can have an opportunity to be physically active, to try to expose them to a variety of sport. So, you know, I just get really passionate and excited about it because it's God's work, it's good work, and we're seeing the impact, and I just love my job. I have the best job in America. I really wish you had been around when I was in high school because I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I, in high school, received the Jessica Belknap Scholarship, which was a four-year academic ride to Cal State Long Beach. One student, whole school, selected every year. Wow. And I sat down with my senior advisor right before graduation. She said, Audrey, I don't know how to tell you this, You've taken this many APs. You're entering college as a junior. You've got the scholarship. We can't sign you off to graduate because you don't have enough PE credits. No Because way. I was literally a master at getting out of PE. I had one semester and I needed four. And you really need that PE to become successful and worthy women and oh, rock yeah. star and a hashtag bad, yes. badass, right? Yes. And just quite frankly, to graduate from high school. That was 
She was like, I've never seen such a case of somebody like most people like, you know, didn't complete enough math requirements. But no, Audrey Bellis didn't complete enough PE. And I said, uh, Miss Valdez, her name was Ann Valdez. I'll never forget this. You have to graduate me. I got this scholarship. It would be really embarrassing if I don't get to walk because I didn't do enough PE. And she said, well, you're going to have to go to summer school. <laughs> you went to summer school and, for PE? That's hysterical. And so the only way to do this was she said, if you get a coach to sign off that you took a semester of PE. Wink, wink, nod, wink, nod. Wink, wink. You go find yourself a friendly somebody. I will let you go to Long Beach City College in the summer and you do a summer and a fall, but show me that you registered for the fall in the summer and I will sign this off. And so I went to our tennis coach and I said, hi, remember me? I signed up for off-season tennis and never showed up because I used to ditch a lot back then because I was an adult and, you know, I could drive. And I really only wanted the outfit. I said, remember me? I really, really need to graduate. <laughs> and he goes, all right. We'll even give you a letter because you're a senior. So I got a, I got a letter for bench warming, but not even bench warming. I didn't show up. And then I went to Long Beach City College and I signed up for weight training with the football guys, right? Their little football team. Well, not little. Little, but big, big football team. It was all the Samoan guys. And I went my first day and the coach goes, I'm not trying to mess with you. You show up, sign in every day, sign your name, and I will give you, I will let you pass this. Credit, no credit. You will get credit. And I'll, I don't want to see you working out in here. I don't want to see you distracting the guys. I don't want to see any of this BS. You're just going to show up and you're going to sign your name. I told him my situation and he goes, all right, you're going to text me and I'm going to sign your name because I don't even want to deal with you. See, that's getting your hustle on oh. early. That's oh. getting your hustle. It lesson, lesson, lesson to the listeners. You got to figure it out. Oh. I almost didn't graduate high school because I didn't have enough PE. And I remember telling my mom this and she goes, how did that happen? And I go, well, I just really, I never did. And what's funny is my sister, who's younger than I am, went to the same middle school that I did. And she's six years younger. So by this time I'm graduating high school, Sarah's entering middle school. Mr. Crabtree was the PE teacher at Hoover Middle School. And he goes, my sister comes home and goes, well, I went to, and my sister's athletic. She played water polo and other, you know, swim sports and stuff like that. And he's, he's going through roll call like the first day. And he goes, Bellis, I got another Bellis in the class. Is this Audrey Bellis' sister? And Sarah comes home and she's telling us the story and we all go to back to school night, meet the teachers. And Mr. Crabtree tells my parents at what an expert I was and how I, Mr. Crabtree, I will be your timekeeper. Mr. Crabtree, I will inventory the balls in the locker room, in the, you know, in the surplus room. Mr. Crabtree, I will do all the math conversions that we need to do to help people. But I was not going to run that mile. And he said he had never had a student more successful at getting out of the mile than Audrey Bellis. To the point that he just stopped asking me to do it. It Good was job. just given that I wasn't going to do it. Getting your hustle on. People. Me and PE. Imagine how my life could have been different. I think, I mean, you, I think you've done all right. I've, I've done okay. I but think like you've done now, okay. Now that I'm an adult and I lack coordination for when balls get thrown at me and I do the eek, like your typical pathetic girl or um, how I cow tipped at my first personal training session. I was doing squats and lunges across the field thing and I got down so low that I literally cow tipped over to the side while my trainer filmed me. All of her Instagram and my Snapchat saw me cow tipping on lunge number three out of 10. I think you've done all right. <laughs> cow tipping notwithstanding. You did all right. We did okay. But you have done all right. And so, Renata, I'd like to know from you, who has inspired you to become the woman that you are today? Wow, that's a deep question. Um, Charlie's Angels. Okay. 
No, I'm just teasing. I mean, that was very original or remake? No, the original. <laughs> girl, the original. That Farrah Fawcett Farrah, clip. Right? Kate oh. was my girl. Kate was my girl. And I think um, TV had an influence on me as a young age. Um, reruns of Mary Tyler Moore, Charlie's Angels. They were they were feminine, but badasses. Yes. They were running things. You know, they didn't even show the man. He was just on the phone. I just thought that was such a interesting dynamic. Oh, I never thought about that. Right? Yeah. It, it, they, he was present, but he wasn't really present. Yes. They were really running things. He just sort of guided them and gave them their mission. So just TV influenced me as women started to become, you know, more out there, more exposed. Certainly my grandmother, you know, service is the price you pay for the space you occupy. She took that from her mother and passed that down to me and really um, didn't, deeds not words. She didn't talk about it. She really lived it every day. And and I just had some phenomenal mentors along the way. Um, People that just you know, were blessings to me that cared about my success. David Crippens, who got me my first job after college. I sent him a blind letter um, trying because I had to still pay for college. And so I sent him a blind letter saying, hey, I need an internship because I got to get a part-time job to make ends meet because I'm in college. Government's paying for my, my schoolwork but, or school tuition, but I don't have any money to eat. And he met with me, had never, just from a blind letter that I sent, interviewed Gave me an internship. I was making $8 an hour. I thought I had landed on heaven and uh, helped me get my first job. So just through through life, I've been blessed with some amazing people that have helped, you know, and stayed in my network, um, but helped me seize opportunities that have come my way along the way. Nice. Uh, any particular books that we should be reading besides Grit? Besides Grit. Um, I'm actually reading two books at the, at the present time. Okay. Uh, one is... <laughs> Sports, Soccer's Without Borders. Uh, It's about Kleinsmann, the famous German soccer player. And it's really about U.S. soccer. He was the U.S. men's soccer coach, national soccer coach, until last year um, they let him go. But after five years and really trying to bring the United States up to the world in terms of soccer. And it's really fascinating because it tells his journey through soccer in Germany, um, but really through his journey of soccer through the world and then how that has influenced U.S. soccer. You know, and hopefully we can figure it out and get on that world stage, which is really interesting because I lived in Germany for two years. And so I'm sort of going back to my experience there and starting to understand some things that I saw in the little towns and the soccer mania that's in Germany. Uh, and then I'm also reading Sellout by Beatty. Uh, he is the first African-American male to win the Booker Prize, which is a prize given to Europeans. And it's, you know, about slavery, perseverance, sort of overcoming uh, your obstacles through a narrative, a narrator who had an interesting experience with his dad that sort of used him as a sort of a as test monkey uh, for some social science experiments. It's a pretty interesting book. Oh, I like that. Just the name. Sell out. Yeah. So Renata, this is the Brown Girls Rising podcast. And as we ask all of our guests, what does being a brown girl mean to you? You have some great questions, Audrey Bells. I mean, brown girls, right? It's a, Do you know the story of brown girls, how I came up with this name? Tell me about it. You know, I like hip hop. <laughs> yes. And Too Short, Getting It, is one of my favorite songs. And when I was flipping latkes to go see Jeremy on Christmaca. Um, Christmaca. <laughs> well, yeah, because Christmas and Hanukkah fell on the you. same day this year. Christmaca. And I had, to, had a bunch of family stuff. And we were going to meet up. And I said, well, I'm bringing the jalapeno latkes. And uh, this happened to happen all this same day. And I remember sending this to him. And I sent it to some of the girls on the team. But I was listening to Getting It. 
And Too Short has this line, I'm one in a million, black men rising, try to keep me down, but I always surprise them. And I was like, I'm a brown girl rising. That's it. That's Thank it. Thank you, Too Short. That's it. Brown girls rising. Power yeah. to the people. Brown girls rising. I mean, you mentioned one in a million, Too yep. Short. I, through my journey, oftentimes I've been the only one. Mm. In the mayor's office, first African-American, deputy mayor for economic development, uh, first African-American senior vice president at the Dodgers. I sit on a board. I'm the only African-American woman. And I'm tired of that. So for me, Black Girl Rising is to, you know, take and seize every opportunity I've been given to represent, but making sure that I'm opening the door to create a tribe, a movement of other black and brown girls so they can rise too. That's what it means to me. And I think what you're doing is so powerful to show examples and to really be a model that we've done it. You can do yeah. it too. Renata, it's been such a pleasure having you. How can we get more involved with LA84? Can we sponsor? What types of groups are you looking for? Volunteers? What are the opportunities? All of the above. Um, we run a number of programs and events. Um, so if you want to get involved as a volunteer, visit us at LA84.org. Call me, 323-730-4613. We love to engage volunteers. Sponsors, um, we have the benefit of an endowment that was a part of the surplus of the 1984 games. It is not nearly enough to reach the impact and the scale. If you want to, as a sponsor, get involved in our work to amplify your brand authentically in the communities that we serve, give me a call, give me a ring, or visit us on our website, la84.org. And do you guys ever look for in-kind donations? All the time. Uh, shout out to Fox Sports West, if I might. Yeah. Uh, we have our annual uh, Youth Sports Summit uh, in October of every year. And last year, Fox Sport produced all of our videos for us uh, nice. in kind. Very, very powerful and a heartwarming gift. They've been a great partner with us. And so we definitely have opportunities for in kind and cash and sponsorship contributions. Fabulous. And how can people connect with you directly on social media? At Renata Angelino. It has been a pleasure, Renata. This has been Brown Girls Rising. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time.